Welcome to the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. This podcast is meant to inspire you to take the next step in your development journey as a faculty member. We're really excited to bring you excellent and interesting content, from inspiring you to teach or supervise more effectively, to leading and managing your own team, to thinking about creative or humanistic ways to do your work, and finally, to build up your skills in scholarly practice. We welcome you to sit back, listen, and enjoy the latest episode of the Mac PFD Spark podcast. In this episode, we hear from Dr. Adam Garber talk about health sciences education. He discusses topics such as his oocyte retrieval projects, team building, and the competence by design program. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to another episode of the Spark Podcast. I'm really looking forward to talking with our guest, Dr. Adam Garber, here today. And before I go on any further and describe how I met Dr. Garber, I'd like to ask you to introduce yourself. Hi, Adam. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Uh, It's really a privilege to be here. So tell me more about yourself and tell the listeners who you are. Yes. First of all, it's good to see you today by way of Zoom. Uh, Of course, we met uh, about a month ago when I came to master to my alma mater, where I did my master's to give a short talk about my experience with respect to my master's and how that has served me well since. But uh, so I'm Adam Gara. I'm an OBGYN. So I'm an obstetrician gynecologist who did my med school back in London, Ontario, and my residency training in uh, Ottawa, which is where I currently work as an obstetrician gynecologist at the Ottawa Hospital. And in the year between when I graduated from my residency and when I started my faculty position in Ottawa, I pursued or began my master's degree at the McMaster Health Science Education uh, Department. And that was a fantastic experience that I'm happy to be here to discuss further. And uh, I work clinically um, as a generalist OBGYN. I have an uh, obstetrical practice. I have a gynecologic practice. I do a fair bit of gynecologic surgery. But my other hats are all related to education. So I am the associate program director for our uh, residency program. And going into my fifth year of doing that, uh, I'm the competence committee chair um, for our residency program as well. And again, going into my fifth year of that. Um, and I also function as the uh, simulation lead for our department. Now, in addition to my McMaster master's in health professions education, I also pursued a simulation, an academic fellowship in simulation-based medical education. And that was through the University of Auto Skills and Simulation Center. So that's a bit about me. Amazing. Yeah. Excellent. Yes. And thanks for sharing with the the listeners how you and I met. To elaborate on that, I met Adam because there is an annual residency week for the health sciences education uh, master's program. And Adam was asked to give the keynote address, uh, or I don't know if you would call it a keynote address, but I considered it that for our annual awards dinner and faculty and student recognition dinner. And after the talk, I was thinking, 
how can I get Adam to come to the podcast and share some of the great examples that he shared during his presentation? So you're going to get a sense of some of the key examples and key learnings that Adam shared during that presentation back in June of 2023. So Adam, you are connected to the Health Sciences Education Master's Program because you graduated from that program. And I'm curious to start us off, how did the program support your clinical practice and research interests? Yeah, great question. Um, it was, a. I will start by going over the fact that it was a great evening. Uh, it was really, really nice to see the program sort of going strong. It was great to meet the sort of the, the students and getting a chance to chat with several of them. Quite inspiring in terms of the work that they're doing, uh, the international footprint uh, in terms in that program, I thought was fascinating and fantastic. So it was just a really nice evening to be a part of. Uh, with respect to how the program has served me, it's really been foundational. When I was giving the talk, uh, I brought up the concept of mirepoix or sofrito, that is to say the lovely mix of carrots and celery and onions that forms the foundation of a chicken soup, <laughs> any number of braised dishes. Um, and I sort of view the masters as that, those sort of foundational elements that allowed me to do uh, and morph into any number of educational roles with some foundational literary understanding that allowed me with to serve my local department from the perspective of, of someone with educational expertise, someone who could know where to look something up, know where, know which principles guided aspects of maybe technical skills coaching, for example. Um, and so it was really those foundational elements that, that the degree helped me with. And all of a sudden, the educational roles just start to find you uh, when you demonstrate a keenness uh, yeah. in, in the area. Yeah. So I have to admit that I was thinking about Sofrito for many days before we had a conversation. And I was like looking it up again, seeing what that recipe was because it was such a vivid image that you presented during your talk of the combination of ingredients. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the way that I took that analogy of the sofrito over the mirepoix is that you're combining within a dish and also then um, by analogy to your own professional life, the clinical practice, your education scholarship, and your teaching interests. And what the health sciences education masters did was allow you to have this blend of practice, education scholarship, and teaching in your in your professional life. Is that a is that a good, I guess, recap of why you use that Sofrito analogy? It's even better. Yeah, it's excellent. Thank you. Oh, okay. All right. So we've talked about Sofrito now. I want to hear some of those examples again that you shared during your talk. So we started with an analogy of uh, something going on in your obstetrics practice. So take it away. Yeah. So, um, so I'll try to give sort of a few different type of uh, examples of the way in which I've employed the learnings that the master's provided. 
uh, and the way that that met up with clinical practice and sort of various needs assessments that we've conducted along the way and the thing, the projects that we've undertaken based on those. Um, starting with a relatively recent example, um, our reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialists at the Auto Fertility Center recently approached us with a specific gap. And I'm going to get a little bit technical as I describe the gap, but the gap was all the conventional way to retrieve eggs when someone is undergoing a fertility procedure is to retrieve these eggs through a transvaginal procedure, of course, under sedation. And not all people can undergo this procedure uh, through the vagina for various reasons. Okay. Uh, in part, sometimes the ovaries can simply be located uh, outside of the range, or they could have had other surgeries that make ovaries not accessible in the conventional way. But ovaries can often be find also found also by um, what's called the transabdominal technique, okay, where you retrieve eggs through a needle that you use and place through the abdomen as opposed to through the vagina. And the challenge or the gap is that nobody knows how to do this, or I shouldn't say nobody, but there really is a small number of uh, Canadian experts who complete this procedure in this way. Uh, and although there's no major technical skill that's particularly different than the, than the skill that most reproductive endocrinologists already have as they perform their transvaginal techniques, there's really an educational gap with respect to some of the small differences that might be relevant and uh, a lack of confidence with respect to how to perform this procedure uh, comfortably on a patient when you have simply not done it in your training. So they approached us and asked us to design a model that was going to be low cost, but realistic and easy to, um, to employ. So we set off, and I wish I could show you the pictures of the arts and crafts trial and error uh, that, that uh, ensued, but uh, we set off on this fancy arts and crafts project to create uh, with the help of essentially long pencil balloons that were filled with fluid, uh, gelatin, and a receptacle as well as some silicone uh, layers to simulate the abdominal wall, we set off to pursue essentially a transabdominal oocyte pickup, low cost, highly realistic simulation model. And we contacted local experts with respect to how to best complete this procedure. Uh, we made sure that we had accumulated the full array of steps. And then we had experts actually review or trial um, this, these ultrasound guided procedures using our model. And it really, I wish I could show you a video, but yeah, for the sake of, it was for pretty this, amazing <laughs> Yeah, for the sake of, um, yeah, the ovaries really did illuminate as they normally would on ultrasound, uh, and the follicles that one would try to traverse with a needle to collect the egg really did collapse as they normally would, uh, when you perform the technical uh, procedure. And the faculty not only rated their confidence and competence highly after having completed the procedure, but we also created a, essentially a, an adaptation of a validated realism survey. Um, and the realism of the model uh, received really excellent scores, but also found one area for improvement 
that was not found to be statistically significant related to the feel of the abdominal wall. Mm. Okay. And that's something that we're changing about the mm. model. But um, it's been a very exciting procedure, uh, or sorry, a very exciting process. The uh, fertility group is now taking it out to be utilized in national conferences. Um, and we really look forward to also working with our local engineers to try and uh, use a different kind of ultrasound phantom so that we're not reliant on a gelatin that, that if not refrigerated, eventually goes bad because <laughs> a bit of a cooking project right now. But it's uh, it's been a really rewarding project, one that directly fills a, a local gap, but also a national one. And the writing for that paper is in progress. So that's an example of a sort of a technical skills project. Now, where does yes. the master's come in? Well, mm. I remember very well my lectures from Dr. Grierson as it comes, as you know, as it pertains to motor learning, mm. right? And so in designing, not only like in when you divide out this project, of course, there's a component of arts and crafts, but it was informed by an, a knowledge of the difference between open and closed skills, right? Mm. Or gross versus fine motor movements or discrete yeah. versus continuous tasks, right? The, those are concepts that are foundational, I think, to the creation of a physical model yeah. that are grounded in the research that's been done to develop this field of kinesthetic learning that enriched my ability to understand or drive how we created the model and then ultimately yes. how we evaluated it. And then something as simple as educational survey creation. Again, a foundational mm -hmm. element of the kind of research we often pursue in medical education. Uh, again, something that, you know, a skill that was afforded to me via the master's. So motor learning, realism, survey creation, you know, all core curricular elements of, yeah. of educational research um, and educational interventions that was, uh, you know, gifted to me by way of my master's. Yeah. And I could yeah. also imagine that in the simulation elective course that you can also choose to take discussions of fidelity and what constitutes re uh, the required components of a learning or a technical skills uh, simulation in order to achieve the outcomes that you're intending. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. The, the trying to break down the elements of realism uh, that are crucial to the specific objectives yeah. um, of what you're trying to teach. Yeah. Excellent. So technical skills acquisition and uh, oocyte retrieval. Yes. One example. Yes. Technical skills was problem number one. Problem number two, uh, communication on the birthing unit. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now this is a, a forever challenge. Birthing units are reliably unreliable. They are known to have uh, a fast pace. It's a very social job. It's a very, it's a job where people bounce off of one another and people need to act together in a crisis all the time. Uh, and our unit or pursued a sort of a structure in terms of quality improvement called CUSP, Comprehensive Unit-Based Safety Program, which is a format founded at Johns Hopkins, I believe. And it's a very simple structure whereby everyone sits around a table. That is to say, everyone who participates in the care pathway for the unit in any way, clerk, 
nurse, midwife, obstetrician, family doc, um, learner. So whether it's a student or resident, uh, everyone has a seat at the table and has a frank conversation about the way in which we could make our unit safer. And the communication on the birthing unit, particularly as it pertains to handover and transfers of care, uh, and in particular as it relates to communications between midwifery uh, and nursing, midwifery and physicians, uh, was highlighted as a core area for improvement. And uh, I remember that happening. I remember I remember sitting at the head of the table for that particular uh, meeting, even though I was in no way leading the meeting. Uh, it was Dr. Cargill at the time. She's now happily retired in Whistler, BC. But I remember all of the heads turning to look to me as the simulation person and as the education person, uh, wondering if I could help to fix this issue. And of course I knew I could not or could not entirely fix it, right? For it is a, you know, it's a, it's for, it's a forever pursuit as opposed to something that can forever be solved, right? Uh, but I knew that we could run a program that could help to work on communication in the birthing unit. Uh, and that could work on aspects of how we deliver handover to one another. And perhaps in so doing and by practicing drills together, we could improve ultimately uh, the outcomes both from a faculty experience perspective and also from a patient experience and patient outcome perspective. And this was the birth of our interprofessional team training program, uh, which we started before the pandemic and ran for three years until the pandemic halted it. And we're now relaunching it um, in a more deliberate and um, uh, mandatory essentially way uh, going forward. So we essentially decided to run multiple uh, skills days, okay? Mm. Where we would bring faculty uh, truly interprofessionally to the simulation center. Uh, we had family doctors, midwives, obstetricians, anesthesiologists, um, nurses, uh, all attend these days and rotate through specific skills. Uh, for example, shoulder dystocia, learning how to run, the basics of shoulder dystocia, learning how to work together as a team when one team cannot get a baby out and needs to call in another team to help get the baby out, uh, what words we need to use to signal level of urgency, um, how to be explicit as opposed to, you know, expect people to guess what you're thinking, and then how to initiate fundamental sort of debriefing conversations that follow uh, or might follow the you know a, a crisis so that we can learn how to get better going forward mm. and these are all sort of languages that we don't practice we learn some of the medical uh, and clinical aspects but we don't practice these aspects mm -hmm. as, as frequently so it's really really well evaluated program uh, a lot of positivity uh, and a great kind of vibe coming from it people continue to ask after it. Um, yeah. once COVID hit, when are we going to get these, you know, sessions going again? And then when we evaluated it more rigorously, uh, again, the, the evaluations were universally, uh, constructive with some great suggestions. 
and again, by, by the end of it, by the way, although it started at one campus, it was done at, across both Ottawa Hospital campuses. There was increasing departmental interest and funding. Um, mm. And again, to bring it back to the Sofrito of it all, right? <laughs> the foundational elements. Well, of course, there was a, a gap identified with respect to communication, but it was you know, learning about Kern's six-step framework in curriculum design, mm. learning about the principle of interprofessionalism. Um, and andragogy, that is to say, adult learning, um, and debriefing, right, which was in part learned through the masters and in part through the simulation fellowship that allowed me to have the skills to help coach the program. Now, the program was not me on my own, of course, right? It was really an interprofessional team that collaborated to make this program run, to get it uh, accredited. Um, and there was a whole slew of support, but as the sort of quote unquote educational specialist, um, I was able to help uh, ensure that there was some sound design from that perspective. And that's where the master's comes in. Yeah. And I really loved this section of your talk because one statement that you said that day that has stuck with me all these months is, or these two months, um, is how teamwork or team building in and of itself is not sufficient. And you said it much better than this, but my takeaway was team building in and of itself is not sufficient. And that team building activity or the approach needs to be ground in what I'm hearing you describe, the development, uh, acquisition of knowledge, skills, and attitudes of that in, in your practice area. So developing communication skills. Yeah. Did you want to elaborate on that? Yeah. 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 I, thank you for remembering that. I, I, um, I showed a video of our, so at the beginning of the half day, we would run a very like non-clinical team building exercise that was very sort of reminiscent of maybe your experience doing a team building exercise at camp uh, yes, exactly. of some sort. And uh, that was sort of an icebreaker that we ran, but yeah, we know that just getting to know each other a little better does not on its own improve patient outcomes, right? It's actually practicing together in the clinical, in a simulated clinical context, performing the actual technical skills of relieving a shoulder dystocia, for example, yeah. um, and learning to work together in that context that, that we know improves outcome based on uh, based on the research. And so this program kind of allowed us to get a little closer to that and, uh, hopefully a whole lot more. It also allowed us to address some really interesting yeah. issues such as hierarchy. Do you want to tell me more about that hierarchy piece? Well, <laughs> I was, I was, <laughs> I was facilitating a transition there. Um, yeah, exactly. Where, uh, one of the, when you do a lot of this team training work, um, but also when you're, when you are close to residency, which I am less and less close to residency, uh, but I used to like to think I was close to residency. Um, and when you are a part of residency program, so you hear a lot about power dynamics and the authority gradient and how people manage uh, and how people might be managing uh, differently, informed always by the power dynamics of a particular clinical or learning environment. And that prompted uh, us to ask some questions about uh, hierarchy, which um, we then completed a qualitative study on uh, using uh, simulation or simulating an actual 
event where residents had to respond to hierarchy in the birthing unit, but actually in a simulated mm-hmm. setting where their faculty actually played by a senior resident uh, was committing an egregious error and the resident needed to respond by advocating for the patient um, to ensure their safety. And it was a fascinating study, a little study. We did a, you know, qualitative interviews following uh, this simulation. Um, And uh, we got some really, really intriguing results. For the sake of time, we don't have to jump into all of them, but uh, suffice it to say, it was a really um, neat subject that began to peel back the layers, I think, on um, some of the mental gymnastics residents go through whenever they build up the courage to speak up on behalf of yeah. patient safety um, and the sort of communication strategies and coping mechanisms that they rely on are really, really interesting or what we found was really interesting and um, really also in, indirectly, I think speaks to the fact that initiatives to manage that cannot just be on funding or providing our residents with specific language tools of how to speak mm-hmm. up across hierarchy, but rather also to empower our faculty to be reflective with respect to the power dynamics that they themselves are creating. Yeah. Well, you're highlighting to me something that I hadn't picked up on before, and that is that our our approaches to team building and improving our team communication in order to improve patient safety, one side of that that we don't often emphasize is the hierarchical nature of some of our our teams and the way that we have to communicate through these hierarchies within a team environment. And so you're you're connecting that to the previous team building work that you have done with your group in that it's not sufficient simply to share with residents, okay, you, you should speak up, you can speak up in this way, here are some practice sentences that you can use. And also, it's not sufficient just to tell faculty, be more aware of your status within this hierarchy and how it could impact on psychological safety. But what you're highlighting is that that these simulation exercises can provide a context within which to practice these discussions, practice speaking up, practice recognizing your position within a team, and to address some of those uh, patterns in a way that eventually can be translated into their own practice. Very well said. I agree completely. And making things, just to build on that, making things explicit, putting them out on the table so that we're not left feeling the dynamic, but actually talking about yes. how to manage it um, so that when you take that out into the clinical environment, you've been through it in a different way and really addressed it almost cognitively. Right. Um, and it kind of demystifies the processes that are happening. Yeah, great, great point, actually. I hadn't thought of it that way, too, is that rather than having it be left to the individual to process on their own, their feelings, this gives them the previous experience so that when they encounter this in their practice, they can then speak or perhaps feel more comfortable speaking up because they've already recognize that, oh yeah, this, this feeling that I'm experiencing, we've addressed this before and I, this is valid and I can speak up. Right. Totally. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I remember well as a resident the need to um, when something was going on and I really wanted some extra support for my clinical opinion, I would walk over to the charge nurse who was helping to manage the birthing unit and really uh, try to recruit them so that they were on my side uh, so that when I, you know, when we needed to manage something, you know, urgently or in a specific way, both they and I had, you know, would share an opinion and I'd have an ally in that. Um, and so I'm not shocked, I suppose I was sort of when one of those, that very theme actually emerged from some of the qualitative work we were doing, it was immediately, so I suppose, relatable to me. Um, right. As as we observed it emerge. Thanks for sharing that. I, I appreciate that example. Now yeah. you had a third area that you shared during your presentation, and this was around competency-based medical education or competency by design. Yes. Um, yeah. It, I mean, the residency program has been the the Ottawa Obstetrics Residency Program. I've just felt connected to it for a very long time. Of course, I trained there and then stuck around there and was at various points along the way, the chief administrative resident. So, can, you know, and the rep for the residency program committee and at other points, a uh, faculty member on the residency program committee. And so it's just a program that I've always felt very invested in or, you know, and when our program fell into some challenge at the level of the Royal College, which I'll elaborate on, being a part of the work towards uh, working on our program has been, you know, has been really, really gratifying, really rewarding and something that I could sort of talk about, I think, for a very long time. Um, our program to elaborate was put on intent to withdraw uh, as men, as, as, as it happens with with programs, this is that this is a process whereby the Royal College, which is the accrediting body, right, um, and essentially the regulatory body for residency programs, um, comes through and performs an external review to assess the program, and if they are concerned in any way, they may return in short order to reassess again, and if things are not on the right track, they may issue a statement that uh, you're accredited, but with an intent to withdraw if you do not change your ways. And again, this is something faced by many programs. This is, I, I bring it up now comfortably because I think just like making team training and hierarchy explicit, I think this is okay. a phenomenon that I think is reasonable to normalize and make explicit. Yes. I think it's important for programs to talk about these things and these experiences as they move through them. And uh, anyhow, there was a, a few, probably a few focal challenges that I won't get into with respect to the program, but I knew that we had a wonderful program on balance. And uh, it was really exciting to take the reins as associate program director. And that actually coincided with when we started our competence by design program, uh, as did all the OBGYN residents, residency programs across Canada. And our feeling always was if we could launch CBD effectively, Okay, CBD as being the short for competence by design, um, you know, and also really attend to the program thoroughly. I, we felt like we had a great program that could, you know, have a ship that is righted within a very short amount of time. Mm. And indeed, it's been a, uh, you know, a really rewarding uh, experience. And after an internal review, uh, 
in our first year as, as program directors, I share that role with Dr. Ling. Dr. Ling's our program director. And uh, then two years later, on external review, we managed to reach full accreditation within that time frame, which is wonderful. Okay. Um, where I think it's valuable in mentioning in this context is that having had some of those foundational elements in my master's training, right, where I became familiar with the principles of andragogy, right, or adult learning, principles of assessment, mm-hmm. right, um, we were able to then, you know, from that, because we kind of had a lot of conversations about the values and the theoretical underpinnings behind the way in which we chose to run the program um, okay. once we took on leadership. And I think those principles and values that are a little bit evidence-based and founded in some core educational principles, I think it's really, really helpful to tie back to when you get into that evening conversation with your program director about how should we move forward with this particular assessment? How can we patch this particular educational gap? Um, Right. And, you know, I bring up andragogy because I think really empowering our residents and acknowledging that these are adult learners who are, as long as we can give them sufficiently the reins, they know how to help us improve our program. Right. Mm. They have a keen eye on what we might need to change. Right. We can do our best to think through it ourselves, of course. But if we can be, productive leaders is such that we are also empowering the learners to essentially co-lead our program with us so that they have a real voice, you know, we'll get the program turned around all the, all the, all the more effectively and faster. And it was a really, really, uh, you know, again, that's the part of, that's the aspect that's been so rewarding is watching our residents step up, tell us what's going on. um, And then, and then making concrete steps to, to change things, improve things, and really just be as responsive to their feedback as possible. Where CBD has been helpful is, you know, CBD was really used by a program to reinvigorate the conversation around feedback and coaching, right? Um, of course, you know, we're all busy clinic clinicians, right? And we try to do as much faculty development as possible. Um, but having that change come along at that particular time allowed us to deliver extra grand rounds about it, uh, allowed us to visit different subspecialties to talk about some of these core principles. And any chance, you know, it's not that they magically became, you know, it's not that they magically were given their own master's in education at that time, mm-hmm. but it was a chance for them to pay a little bit of attention. They're already wonderful teachers but pay a little bit of attention to some of the new language around coaching um, so that they could go back and tweak their teaching just a little bit. Um, Maybe tweak how reflective they allow residents to be in their coaching conversations, for example. Um, And and in you employing some of these sort of core principles and leveraging this fun educational change, okay, or we chose to think of it as fun, (laughs) um, you know, uh, allowed us to, you know, just gave us platform for for more active and more fast change, which we thought the program uh, benefited from. Adam, that's incredible. And did I just cut you off there? No. Oh, I as you're as you're talking, be, even before you mentioned coaching and feedback, 
that's what I was hearing from your approach is that as you're highlighting your uh, emphasis and your attention to andragogy and empowering residents, learners, your colleagues, and the faculty to come together and implement CBD in your group. I, I see such leadership and insight, as well as just a, a real vision for how to bring people together, capitalizing on collective strengths, as well as their knowledge and experiences to move uh, the, the unit forward or to move your group forward. And I hear you that, yes, yeah, you're describing from your experience how you've led or been involved in these various initiatives, research studies, and uh, team building um, events. And yet what also is really coming through is how you have worked in collaboration with others and have also developed an, an empowered team around you to carry out this activity. So super, super interesting. And thank you so much for sharing this, Adam. Now I have one final question and this is looking towards the future for you. Okay, all right. Given all that you've discussed and what you've shared so far, and there's so much more that I know that you've been involved in because I actually just looked you up and like read up on some of your other activities. What What's coming up for you in this next year? What does the next year hold for you? So, um, so okay. To stick with the residency program for a moment, the, the coming year will be our, our fifth year as a tandem program director, associate program director, and as my fifth year as competence committee chair. And we actually have the university's external review coming up. So we have an additional external review, <laughs> even though we're fully accredited, but yeah. we're really excited about it because then it puts us on sort of really solid ground once we can get this one through. So it'll have been three reviews in five years, which is wow. a lot. Uh, so that's a, you know, that's something we're prepping for already. Um, and it ties back to one of the principles I had been meaning to share, which is that of educational writing. I think it's great to be able to make a lot of change, but it was helpful to have Dr. Ling remember almost photographically all of the different changes that we made. And it was helpful to have sort of me who likes words and sitting on my computer and, and fussing with phrasing to actually put our best foot forward to the Royal College by, and, you know, by utilizing the educational writing skills learned via the many papers that we had to submit it through the masters. Um, and I look forward to employing that again for this coming year. And the other really exciting change uh, for the upcoming year is that we're building on our team training program, as I alluded to, in a way that makes it essentially mandatory, not mandatory annually, which is a stretch goal for everyone to come through the simulation center as a team, as an interprofessional team of faculty, but actually um, mandatory such that they're getting trained up every two years. Mm. And we've secured departmental uh, support, and I'm so grateful to the department for that. Um, and we have a, a a great team. I'm the sort of simulation and education focused lead uh, and co-chair and Dr. Gomes is our quality 
uh, lead and is co-chairing the project with me, which is really exciting. We have a fantastic steering committee that is entirely interprofessional as has been a theme thus far. So really looking forward to, to uh, rolling this program out deliberately such that the whole unit of both campuses is trained regularly and such that we're actually monitoring aspects of our culture, okay? That is their faculty mm -hmm. experience more deliberately in a scholarly way and in a, and in a sort of a, almost a local quality improvement way. Um, and also monitoring aspects of patient outcome so that we can properly assess mm -hmm. uh, not only our program, not only how we can make it better, but whether it's having an impact, which as we know is with respect to education is critical mm -hmm. to demonstrating the value of the program. Uh, critical to also securing ongoing funding, right? So that's really exciting uh, for us as well. Right. And I imagine that in that first example, you were describing about the oocyte retrieval, you're, you're really taking that on the road and sharing that simulation model with, with other groups, other organizations. Yeah. yeah. Step one is dissemination sort of at the you know, in a journal uh, that's in the works. And then our fertility, the goal is to actually hand it off to our fertility team wow. so that they can then, you know, as the specialists in the area, uh, do a lot of the, the teaching around it and disseminate it at, at uh, national and hopefully international workshops. Excellent. So I'm excited to see that through as well. Yeah. Great. Thank you very much, Adam. It's really nice to have this opportunity to talk with you today and also to be reminded of the key points that you shared at that health sciences education dinner. Really appreciate our conversation. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. It was a real privilege to chat with you at the dinner and then also again just now. Thank you for tuning in to the Mac PFD Spark podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Office for Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development at McMaster University's Faculty of Health Sciences. For more information on faculty development, be sure to check out our website at macpfd.ca. That's macpfd.ca. Here you can find other episodes as well as resources for your personal and professional development. A quick shout out to our sound engineer, Ishan Mania Panda, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Another shout out to Scott Holmes, who composed and supplied us with the music you've been listening to. That brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you've enjoyed it, and be sure to tune in for our future episodes.